0: Hello and welcome to episode 213 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today on the podcast, we welcome Ken Shipley from Numero Group and Tree Records. Many may know Numero Group for their fantastic reissues, and they have a show coming up this weekend in Los Angeles celebrating 20 years called Numero 20. It's a very, very special two-day affair with bands that we've featured on the podcast and more to come. What we're going to touch on for this episode with Ken is how he got to Numero and his first experiences figuring out the world of record making under the name Tree Records. The label had a fantastic run of releases highlighted by a series called post Stamps that put many bands that we love in the emo genre on the map. It's a true honor to spend an hour with a person I look up to professionally. Like to thank anyone out there that supports this endeavor on Patreon. If you want to help out, go to patreon.com slash washedupemo. Special thanks to Double Elvis Podcast Network. They have an amazing podcast network. Doubleelvis.com to learn more. This is episode 213 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast with Ken Shipley from Numero Group and Tree Records.
1: Some days are heavy and some days are me. Some days fall somewhere in between Today I would like to tear you apart at the seams Like taking a plane is the worst kind shipley the date is saturday january 21st and we're in highland park california
0: i think what is great to start on this one is the label that maybe not a lot of people know about but it's worth going through is tree can you talk about starting the label um or if you want to start another way happy to but this this will let's let's do tree so
1: i was selling records uh, out of my locker in high school and at shows in Cupertino, California. And the thing that I noticed when I met people like um, Kent McClard or Matt Anderson from Gravity is, or um, Adam from Indian Summer who ran Repercussion, the, the advantage that they had when they were selling records in the back of shows was that they had their own records that they could trade with people to get other records to sell. And it sort of made their boxes more interesting and had a lot more depth. Um, And so ultimately I looked at that and I was like, if I have my own record to sell, then I could trade those records for other records. And then all of a sudden I'll have the best selection in my area. Um, And it was that that really planted the seed. Now the record itself came about a different way, but... But I I'd had the idea of making a record since I was about fifteen. Wow. I just didn't know what it was going to be yet. You knew you wanted to put out a record. Well, it just I would seen what Discord was. Um, I I understood what SST was and and look out at like I I understand what a record label was for probably the first time at at fourteen or fifteen. I joined the sub pop singles club and I I'd, I'd had records and so I I. I, I would look and see the things that tied those records together and, and a record label seem like a really interesting thing to me from a pretty early age. And then, yeah, I, I just, I knew I wanted to make a record. And then the name, the name tree records actually came from finding a rubber stamp at the De Anza flea market in 1994. Um, and also from finding this really cool image of a eucalyptus tree um, in this retirement home by my house's garbage. Like they would always, like when somebody would die, most of their stuff would end up just getting kind of thrown out and sort of scavenged through that. And that's where the cover for eucalyptus, which is this sort of woodblock cut eucalyptus, and then thinking about tree as in there was going to be my original idea is that every record would be a different tree, rather than a different catalog number, and so eucalyptus was just number one. Interesting, um, but that changed. Um, <laughs> that, that's not how it ended up playing out. But it, you know, it, I had sort of lofty ideas for it, probably from the start. Um, there were there were other people that I knew that had started record labels before too, like Clay um parton who did unleaded who'd put out the mohinder records and the calm records he was somebody that was around i had other friends that had made records so i I already kind of understood records and the kids that were you know in the cupertino sort of post-hardcore scene as it were um were were sort of a turned-on sect but I, i was i did it by just saving money um you know, from selling records at the back of shows and taking a little bit of that cash and putting it aside. But my other hustle was that on Sunday nights I would go out on my skateboard and ride around the neighborhood with a big black trash bag and take cans out of the recycling bins of people. And then on Monday morning I would show up at the parking lot with the can recyclery and would trade those cans in for money. And I'd get like 30 bucks a week or something like that and put that aside. And then it, you know, it stacks up faster than you think, right. You know, all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, I, I have enough money to, to do this? How did that, how did that happen? Uh, and then, you know, ultimately the record that I ended up making was, uh, called Eucalyptus and it was a compilation of seven groups that had played the Cupertino library, which is where I was doing a lot of shows in the summer of 94. It was just like, I'd, I'd done these, this really incredible series of shows, um, and they'd all been, like, really important and memorable shows. And I met the people and, and asked them while they were there if they'd be interested in sort of doing, you know, giving me a song for this compilation, not really knowing that I was documenting the scene at the time. You know, I think, like, uh, I, I just thought it would be fun to put out a record, but you know now it's, like, you know, I don't know, 27 years since, 20, 28 years since that that summer. Um, it, it feels like... I was inadvertently uh, documenting the a uh, kind of a chapter of my life by making that record.
0: Wow and where, how did you meet some of these bands? Was it just from the shows and booking and realizing I can put this out or well,
1: like Indian summer, for instance i I was buying records from repercussion um, to sell out of my box and I'd seen I'd seen them play a bunch of times you know Allure was a, a, a like the only emo band from my town um and they were they, they didn't have anything else out and I was like well we got to have them cuz they I would book them on a lot of the shows that I ended up putting on current I met through selling records through Matt um, you know, and, and having council stuff in my box and putting on that show. Boilermaker, you know, put on a show. Julia, put on a show. Embassy, put on a show. Shroom Union, put on a show. On and on, you know, and, and uh, you know, it wasn't that hard to sort of piece this thing together. My original idea was that it was going to be an LP, but then when I called to get the prices on the LP and saw how much more expensive it was between the jacket and all this other, you know, like everything was bigger. I was like, oh, maybe it could be more like two seven inches because um, two seven inches was like not even nearly as expensive as the LP. And right. then you could make all the packaging yourself because it was like, you know, you really just had to be able to raid like a copy store, you know, and and be able to fold and paste and do things like that. You didn't, you know, like the LP was just such a bigger commitment. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like that, that, that first idea, you know, of, of eucalyptus. It came to me in that summer, but it took me almost a full year to get the record out. Wow. How come? Well, one, I didn't have enough money. Um, cause it was more money than I thought it was going to be. And, and then two, you know, you had to like, I didn't know how to master anything. I didn't know how to like, like I, I, I knew this guy named Bart Thurber who was like the uh, South Bay, like recording genius of the era. And I knew he had a DAT machine and a DAT machine that could make a copy of another DAT. And so I had these seven DATs. I needed to turn them into one master. DAT. You know, it was all these steps that had to go that I hadn't really like considered because I had no experience making records. Um, and, you know, I, I could sort of piece it together, but it was like, there's no Internet. There's no, there's, you know, the people that you can ask questions who are are very limited. Um, and my resources were really limited because I was doing this basically from, you know, money I pulled together in, you know, really stupid ways. Right. So um, it just ended up taking a really long time to, to get there. But I remember that it arrived, like, I think around the 10th of June, um nineteen ninety five, the UPS truck rolled up, you know, and the records come out and it's it's a lot fewer boxes than you think it's gonna be. Um, and then you're like, Whoa, I've got these records. And then it was like, Okay, I gotta
0: well, I gotta put them together.
1: Amazing. And then all the kids that lived at the house that I lived with, we all spent, you know, like the next three weeks assembling all these records. And then you were like, okay, now I gotta sell them. Well, that sound, you know, which I would call like kinda maybe. I don't. I, it's probably technically first wave emo, but in my opinion, it's like second wave emo because I consider revolution summer to be first wave and then kind of everything 90 and after is sort of its own little thing. Um, but, uh, that sound was very, very popular if you were selling records to like ebullition at the time. You know, or, you know, like, like there, there were just, there were little distros all around that sold these kind of records. And I knew that between Indian summer and current and Shroom Union, that these were all pretty names that people in that world would have already heard, right. would have already understood. Um, and so it wasn't going to be a tough sell to sell a, a thousand records. That wasn't, that, that wasn't going to be difficult at all. And it, it, it really wasn't. Wow. Um, you know, that first thousand disappeared in, I don't know, two months, three months. They were gone, and then all of a sudden it's was just like, "Wow, I actually have a little bit." You know, it's like you can't make a ton of money selling a seven-inch. I don't care how much you're charging, but right. at the time, I think my prices for the double seven-inch were four dollars wholesale. <laughs> which you know, when you think about how much time we put into making them and you know shipping them, and I think I probably paid for the shipping. There's just like no way that we made money, but but it it was like I I had money, and then. I turned it into a little bit more money and I had an idea for a next record by that point. So it was like, well, if I had two records, you know, and, and then you're just on the train, you're on the path and uh, projects start introducing themselves to you.
0: That's what I mean. Like what happened from that first one? Who did where people started calling or reaching out or each show kind of said, oh, I have this, well, I have you, that record. And-
1: well, you would like advertise in Heart Attack magazine. And then people would send money to your PO box and you'd take your little PO box money and you'd fill the order and you put a little catalog in there of what you're doing next. And you know, the heads that are buying records at that level, if you're, if you're buying records from a stranger in the back of a magazine and sending money and sending cash, you're into something different. Like that's not, that's, this is not, you know, right. straight laced society. This is, this is some underground stuff. Um, and so I think that if you're buying underground stuff, you generally probably pay attention to all the things that come with the thing that comes back to you, right? It's those little catalogs, the stickers, whatever it is, you know, they're sort of part of the, uh, the ritual of getting records from an underground label. And I was always really good at making little things, writing little notes and stuff. And it wasn't hard to sort of, you know, realize it's like, oh, well, I could just keep selling records to the same people over and over again if you've got the right stuff that they want
0: right and did you feel there like you said you feel there was a sound kind of happening at that moment that you were capital not capitalizing but aware of
1: uh it was just it was what i was into at the moment you know and it was like it seemed really important to me because it was sort of i don't know like you don't know a ton about music when you're young you sort of gravitate towards the things that you love and then i don't know you get a little older and you your tastes improve and, and, and refine and, you know, you're constantly sort of going in and out of phases. And in that time, uh, emo was really, really important to me. But even by the time that record, had come in and I was selling them, I'd already had a different sound in my ear. Cause I was already listening to the, like, you know, seam and what was happening on drag city and, and touch and go. And, and, you know, like looking at Chicago as sort of like a, a cool thing, like the Juno 44 record had come out and seen, you know, it's like, Oh, it's in this chipboard packaging. And, you know, like it seemed very, um, very next. And I knew the thing that I, was involved with sort of seemed like the past because it was because like all those bands were broken up by that point you know I i think only like boilermaker was still a was like the only band that even lasted from that wow that comp um so it just ended up i don't know like the record hit me at 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 like the right time when i made it but the wrong time when it showed up and so my my tastes were already in this pivot towards something different
0: So can you, do you remember those moments of I'm onto this next thing? Uh, I know this record's out or, um, I mean, your mind was probably racing thinking how much more, you know, what, how much can I put out? Right. Yeah. So um,
1: that summer um, when I was buying, you know, like buying really cool records for the first time, I'd, I'd met this person, uh, Dana Lamacchio, who uh, is the, the sister of Tom Lamacchio from the Deadwood Divine. Um, and plunger and I th- we, we had um, a correspondence together and she was like you should come out to the east coast and so I told my mom I was like I'm gonna go out to the east coast for the summer um, and look at colleges um, and in my back of my mind it was still the idea that I would maybe go to college even though I, I wasn't really going to college I was like in community college um, and and you know barely attending and right and and not being a great student, even in the tenants that I was <laughs> part of. So um, she, I was like, oh, I'll go out to the East Coast and, and hang out with Dana and Tom. Uh, and then I met them, and we just started going to shows. And, you know, like I met, we went to Ida like a couple of days after, um, it, you know, I got there. And I met Dan Littleton for the first time there. And they introduced me to just so much music. And uh, one of the shows that we, that we that we went to was like, Ethel Meserve and Cerberus Shoal were playing, um, some, you know, like a basement or something like that in, in Maryland. And, uh, I remember seeing both those bands being like, wow, these bands are incredible. Ethel Meserve at that time was probably still a little more, um, in the like Hoover mode of, of Discord, you know, that sort of, um, Early '90s Discord sound—they were really attached to—and uh, I thought that was at least a little hipper than the the emo thing. Not really realizing that those things weren't—you know—were just degrees at that point, right? right. Like they are not that far <laughs> from each other. But they sounded a little cooler. And and the the Cerberus Shoal guys had made this LP, and that LP was like. I don't know, it was, it was just a really, really good record that, you know, at the time hearing it, and it was just like sort of, uh, maybe the, the East coast version of still life or something like that. And hearing those two bands and knowing it's just like, Oh, I have a record label. I could put out this record. Like, would you let me put out your next record? And, um, and they said, yes. Uh, simultaneously, Dana and I, um, started running the label together, um, from, um, our, my apartment in Baltimore, And um, she and we had this idea for a series of records called Postmark Stamps. And they were basically just about like, you know, records that you would send, you know, like letters and mixtapes and all the stuff that you would communicate with people in that old analog and organic way that people don't do anymore. But it was just a sort of a. A, a tribute to our friendship and and brief uh, love affair and um, you know we really wanted to make something that was like taking two bands that were maybe from different places and then sort of connecting them through this single which was really just art you know she had a, a really incredible stamp collection that we sort of identified oh wouldn't it be cool and then and then I went out and sourced a place that just sold single stamps, you know, they, they, you know, like it was this place in Florida and I got all the original Brooklyn Bridge stamps that we wow. had for the Ida Ida and Deadwood Divine record. And you know, all those things, they happened that summer, like the Ida-Deadwood split came together that summer, S- doing the Ethel Meserve single came together that summer, doing the Cerberus Shull album came together that summer, even though they took a, a little bit longer to come out, but the ideas were already planted, you know? And so it's like, I had a, uh, just a bunch of like a, a, you know, a font of really interesting ideas at once. And then it was more like, well, how are we going to pay for this?
0: Where was that? Where was that coming from?
1: Do you have other jobs or was it? I've never really had any other jobs. Um, I basically been making records since I was 18. Um, I've had like stints at small places. Like I, I worked at a company called Ricoh Disc in between tree and my next record label, um, I worked at Barnes and Noble for some health insurance briefly after Tree folded, um, but I, but mostly I've just been trying to you know make it off of making records, which is funny, is because uh, I remember reading this thing that Kent McClard wrote at the time, and he was like, or or in an interview or something along those lines, and he was like, um, if you're trying to live off of running a record label, you're doing it the wrong way, um, and I really like took that to heart, except for the fact that I was like, well, why can't you figure out how to make, just make a living off of selling records? Like that should be possible. Um, and then, uh, you know, I just decided that I was going to do it. Like I was going to spend every waking hour either assembling records or on the phone with some distributor or trying to get something reviewed in a magazine or making an ad. And, you know, I put a tremendous amount of Hours in that first year, and in a way that nobody I knew was willing to do, mostly because you know some of them were going to college, right, and, and trying to figure, you know, having having to have a real job because I was basically living off of the meagerness of the eucalyptus sales, you know, that were yeah. continuing to come in. I did a repress on that; that sold another thousand really quickly. You know, it's just like by the time that the next few records arrived, I actually had like a little bit of a nest egg. That, you know, I I was not living well by any stretch of the imagination, but I was living so cheaply that I could continue to just do the record label and not have to worry about putting my energy into looking at a, you know, like, oh, I got to go to eight hours spending this other thing. I was like, no, I'm going to spend eight hours working on these records. I'm going to sell these records and it's going to be worth more to me than the job could have paid me. Right. And if you're not making enough records, you're not selling enough records, you need to find a way to make
0: more records and sell more records in that time. So how did those, like when you were sitting on the phone eight hours waiting for a phone call back, there's not the refreshing of your, you know, social media accounts, the email. Like how were those, um, did you, did, I, I think back and I just wonder, I, I I not wonder, I remember how much I spent on something like a song or writing. Um, did you feel that, that you, that you had enough time to make make these things right? I feel like we're rushed a little bit. Oh, I saw this thing online. I gotta get this thing out now. To, even though you might have felt um like I don't know if it's not rushed, but um there's not stimulus around you sort of motivating you. Well, the, the motivation
1: for me though was to be able to make more records. I always had more ideas for records than the records that I could make, and so it was like I wasn't calling one person waiting for eight hours for them to call back. I would go to the payphone with my dialer and I would set at that payphone for five or six hours and grind through a list of people that I needed to call, whether it was people that I needed to sell records to, or people that I wanted to talk to in a band about a project I wanted to do, or some girl that I was interested in, whatever it was, right I was going and spending, you know, four or five hours a day at a phone somewhere and you know, like grinding through a big list of things. So I was always hustling and then I stayed up late, you know, like I, I my schedule for that time would be like, go to bed at 5am, wake up around noon, go to the record store, go to the mailbox, you know, make a bunch of phone calls and then come back. Maybe you make some dinner and then you're grinding, you know, pushing records together and before <laughs> there's a show that night. Yeah, exactly. You know, there was always something to kind of do and, you know, I would stay up super late and, and just work and work and work. And, um, you know, I just, it's like that kind of dedication was what it sort of required at that time. Uh, and I didn't have anything else going on.
0: So why did I care? Was, and there wasn't a goal. Did you have that in your head or a, a way like I want to be able to do this by this moment or was it day by day? It was really, it
1: was hand to hand combat. I mean, my goals, like I said, were I wanted to put out, more records, like you know, my thing was just like I understood that from a very very early moment that having a lot of records meant that you had a lot to fall back on, you know, that like if some if you put out a, a duff, but you've got forty or fifty behind you, that duff doesn't mean that much, you know, like it nobody you know you just roll over that right when you only have ten records and you put out something that's a miss, well then it's a, you know it's a, it's a lot harder you know and so it's just like and let's say you have ten great records out and then the next ten you put out are all duds. Ugh, You know, like then then it's really tough. And so to me, it was really about just trying to get as many records as I could out as quickly as possible to maintain some kind of cash flow uh, for the catalog continuously so that I just wasn't ever going to have to be reliant on having a hit or anything along those lines. Yeah. And there were no hits, you know, right. like, like I, when I when I think back on Eucalyptus, you know, it's it sold five, 6,000 copies, you know, I I had some, a pinback CD that sold it five or 6,000 copies. I had, you know, some uh, Julie Duran records that sold a few thousand, you know, like these are not big selling records right. by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, you know, it's a miracle that I was
0: able to do it for as long as I did. Wow. What did you, when, when you, f- what did you feel or see a band and wanted to work with them? What, what, what were things that stuck out to you then?
1: Um, well, funny enough, I, I've always been a little underwhelmed by live shows. Like I've always preferred the record to the live show. Um, but, for me, what really does it with a band is seeing something with a lot of energy uh, that feels like it's transcending the record, and then you know that you've got something special in that band because they're going to do something that you can't hear on the record, and that's the reason why you got to go to the show. Um, so, uh, it, 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 even going back to like Ethel Mizer, you know, like they were a really great live band. Their drummer was an incredible drummer, and uh, to watch him play was a joy. And so, you know, I they were tight they were rehearsed you could tell that they they cared about putting out a a product that was worth paying attention to it wasn't some sloppy pop punk band um and i don't know i guess i always look for like a little bit of professionalism with people and it's just like like is this tuneful um i've always been more into melody than into like angular stuff um so i've always been drawn towards finding artists that can sing or or you know have a have a, a pretty part in the song at least
0: um I like that. No, I I am hor- like uh, I was horrible with lyrics. I'm always like if they could sing it, I'm not going to remember the lyrics or there's a great guitar part that hooks you cuz things can just sound like level and if there's peaks and valleys to something, that's when it would it would pick out for me. I'm sure that would be if there's a breakdown or if they're quiet and loud, those were probably moments too.
1: Yeah, you know, I I was just Uh, just such an omnivore about like song at that point and just like really wanted to hear as many different permutations of songs as i could and 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 a little bit in love with the idea of having something stuck in your head yep which is such a a funny idea you know it's like getting something stuck in your head it's like like what else does that but music um and so like these little melodies sort of They became the idea for me became it's just like it'd be great to get more melodies stuck in people's heads. And I knew that when I was putting out a record with something that I could get stuck in my head that I was like, oh, well, if I can get this stuck
0: in my head, someone else, someone else will get this stuck in their head. That's cool. Did you feel a momentum as you started to maybe put out these postmarked and other releases were coming out? Did you or did it feel the same?
1: No, there, there was. So I did the label in Baltimore and then I moved to Philly. For a little while um and i knew that in order to grow the label out from being like a seven inch kind of post hardcore or slash emo label that i was going to need to kind of work with a bigger distributor and hope that some of their professionalism might kind of wear off on me um which was kind of a dumb idea uh in hindsight but i was really enamored with this distributor called southern records and they um, they distributed Discord. They distributed Simple Machines. They distributed DeSoto. And, you know they had Karate and Rex on their label. And they were, they were just a really cool um, yeah cool record label at that time. Um, and I sent them a package that was like, hey, I'm I'm looking for distribution. This is the, these are the things that I've done. And at that point, I think I'd put out like eight, maybe eight records or something, six, seven. I don't know. Not many. Um, but they thought, they were like, oh, this stuff is really cool. And they liked my energy. Um, and they agreed to distribute the Cerberus Show record. Wow. Which was the first thing that we did together. And they sold, you know, like we sold a thousand CDs in, I don't know, four weeks or something like that. Which was a lot of the time. It was like, wow, this is actually sold. Like, you know, we, we made some money. Wow. Um, and I just got this idea in my head. I was like, well... Southern is there, and Thrill Jockey is there, and Touch and Go's over there, and Drag City's over there, and like Chicago is just. The record label indie record label capital of America in the late 90s and I just knew that I wanted to be there and that I could like I was like oh this is how we're going to become the next great record labels you got to go to town with other great record labels which that's also not true Um, (laughs) but it just seemed right at the time and so I I decided I was going to move there and I I picked up and moved there on the idea that that was the momentum that I needed to kind
0: of carry the label into the next version of itself. And what, what was that? Was that um, more bands from that area?
1: Well, no, I mean, i was never uh, i was never really a geography person in terms of like I needed to document a local scene or anything like that. Like I said, I, I was mostly interested in putting out things that I liked and thought, you know, it was like, oh, if I have okay taste, then maybe some other people will think I have okay taste too and they'll like this thing that I found. Um, but I started moving towards more things like, you know, Like Ida, for instance, you know, that that's the the sort of late 90s singer songwriter sound that Elliot Smith and, you know, Mary the Lord were doing. It was just like, oh, these people are getting signed to major labels. Um, Are they writing classic songs? Maybe, you know, is there is this a, a, a new generation kind of picking up the torch of the late 60s? It was it was hard to tell. Um, and I think as it's borne out, um, answer is no, but, uh, I became really fascinated with the idea of, uh, you know, somebody that could be a Joni Mitchell, you know, and, and like, what would it take to, to make a record that was like a true classic and, and, you know, what does that look like? And having no experience in either um, sales, marketing or distribution, you know, it's hilarious to think about that now because... It, it was, you know, at the time, here were your options. You sent some copies out for review. Um, maybe, you know, you hired a publicist. <laughs> you sent some copies through AAM to some college radio stations. Sunday service. Sunday service. And um, you kind of crossed your fingers. You know, there wasn't much you could do. You, you know, like I remember once getting a, a, a review in Entertainment Weekly and being like, that's huge. And then, I mean, like, but what is it? You know, because it's like because the people still have to get the record. Where are people who are reading Entertainment Weekly buying records? Like Best Buy? Are we in Best Buy? No? Sam Goody. So <laughs> so it didn't it doesn't matter, you know, and it's it's um you know, I think like my sights were just a lot higher than I think my abilities or even the music that I had, you know, I wanted to do something that could potentially be a little bit, I don't know, mainstream is not the right word, but just like, could I have could I make something that my parents would listen to, you know, like what, what's it going to take to make something that's really listenable? and know yeah. it's going to affect people. And, um, I would not say that like every ANR choice that I made was a great one, but I'm still really proud of like, you know, doing the Franklin records and Julie Duran and Jen Wood and uh, the A set stuff, you know, like I, I pin back and the K records, These are all unique little things that I, you know, I got to bring into the world. They just didn't happen to sell very well, you know, like they'd come out and you'd know, sell a thousand CDs or 1500 CDs. Maybe you get some reviews, maybe the band goes on tour and then you're just kind of on to the next record, you know, because there's there's no there's there was no like way to really get this to anywhere. I mean, I was had a distributor in Southern Records, but that meant basically that they could sell some CDs to some indie stores, and if somebody saw it at the moment and they heard about it, maybe they would buy it, but it was still able to come back in a return, right? And it just there was just no way to like find an audience at that time without having like a real breakthrough, you know, like it, it's just, I, I'm amazed that I was able to do the things that I, I did because when I look back on it, I realized just how minor and small these things were, how, how minor the audiences were. We're talking, you know, thousands, thousands, you know, and, and not 10,000. <laughs> like, you know, like if you could reach 4,000, that seemed like a lot of people. Right. Um, but you know, I just don't think that uh, I had the records that people wanted either, and I didn't have a way to get them to people. So it was a, it, you know, a a number of sort of like uh, bad things coming together at once um, that ultimately forced the label out of business. So it lasted five years. It lasted five years. I mean, so the the end of it was kind of painful. Um southern had been my distributor and we had a bit of a falling out and they decided that they were gonna hold all of our money um for like shit. a year and all of our records for a year wow and that year it just wiped me out it was like one it went from being like i can you know like pay my rent off of these. <laughs> seven inch singles I'm selling to like, I'm not getting any money from these seven inch singles. And meanwhile, they're like calling every other distributor, whether it was revolver or stick figure, or whoever and being like, don't work with this guy. Don't work with this guy. And so Whoa. I just, I'd gotten like blacklisted really quickly um, with them. And it just, it just became very difficult. It was like, I had a Jen Wood record in the hopper that was going to come out. I had, you know, like I had a bunch of records that were, you know, like I had a, a compilation that I was working on. I had all these things that were, again, you know, I was like a record fiend. I had I had plans for another 10 or 15 records after that, but, you know, not having a way to get distribution, it just, it, it, and not being able to find somebody who'd, you know, be willing to do a and d at that point, there was just nothing I could do. Wow. Um, and it was hard. It was one of the, uh, you know, at 23, it felt like the lowest moment of my life. Thankfully, I'm 45 now and experienced some much lower moments, so I know that that wasn't really that bad. <laughs> but it was, it was bad at the time, and it was a lot of money at the time um, to me because I didn't have very much money. And it forced me into a bit of a defensive position. Uh, but a bunch of great things ended up happening <laughs> because of it. Because the thing about tree that's kind of, you know, interesting to me is that it, it was more like going to college, you know, it was just like here, you're going to take a bunch of classes. You're maybe going to get a little bit of knowledge out of this, but the reality situation is that you're, you're just a little smarter than when you came out of this thing and you're just older. Um, and so at 23, you know, like I, I, I had all these skills. I was like, Oh, I can project manage. Right. Um, you know, I know how to talk to people. I, you know, like I, I have some knowledge of the music music industry, uh, you know, and I, I started becoming a a real student and I decided like, you know, I I worked at Barnes and Noble for a year and I read all the music business books, you know, and I just, I used that time when Southern was holding all my money and my records to just, you know, really like work on my brain and like get myself schooled up. And it's like, that was the, the, you know like getting you know getting ready to take the gre you know right, like totally like that that was that moment for me where it's like okay here you are like you don't have a college education you barely have a high school education you only know how to make records well what are you going to do next when you're going to make more records and right. you're going to figure out where that is wow um, and i wouldn't have been able to do that if i would have kept running tree records it's just the reality and all the people that i met along the way that after that i mean I, i'm not I'm not into fate or, or religion of any kind, but I do think that there is a uh, a magic to this universe, and that it will lead you to places if you just you know sort of open your eyes and let it happen and um, put I stuff out in the world. Yeah, and I don't think I just don't you know if I would have kept running tree, you know I'm not going to throw any other label under the bus, but there's a lot of labels that I see. I'm like, oh man, if you would have stopped at five years, done something else for a few minutes, and then started your next one. You'd be so much further along. Instead, you're a ten year old label that's about to go out of business because you're burned out. Right. And um I think, you know, as as to to quote um every tech bro in the world, <laughs> uh you want to fail early and you wanna fail often. And and I'm I'm grateful now for the failure.
0: Right. What about um I guess most mentioning Postmarked, like having people years later trade those or seeing those show up on eBay or those kind of things pop up a little bit later. What was that like, seeing? Well, they were getting expensive when I was still doing the label. I mean, those
1: postmark stamps records sold... You know, they sold well and they sold quickly. You know, I'd make, I'd, I couldn't, I could not keep them in stock at Southern. You know, like I'd bring wow. over 100, they'd disappear really quickly. i bring over 200. And keep in mind, they're all handmade. I made every single one of those records by hand. I touched every record. I glued every stamp. I, I you know, every single thing, every envelope in there is an envelope that I licked. You can get my DNA off it. So... Uh, it wasn't like a factory of of records it was one person in uh, you know on an apartment <laughs> just grinding things out right. hour by hour by hour um and so they aren't there aren't a lot of them out in the world but they were also a little scarce even when they were coming and because they all look the same people love to collect things that look the same that's totally. just some, some basic psychology <laughs> <laughs> um, And so I had kind of a, a collectible thing in mind, even when we were coming up with the concept for the record, which is like, let's make these things, let's make them limited, let's make them interesting and special packaging, and people are gonna pick them up and be like, this is cool. And oh wait, there's two, two more and three more, and so people were collecting them from the beginning. And the Braid Get Up Kids one, that was a moment where it was like the demand. Was so much higher than the supply in that moment, and it was brief. Don't get me wrong. That you know, I remember going on eBay in like ninety eight or ninety nine. I remember the first time I went on eBay, somewhere somewhere at the at end of the century, um, and searching for all the records they put to see if they're just. And that one was like somebody had paid thirty five dollars for it, which seemed absurd because I sold them for you know three dollars. Wow. <laughs> you know, like these were wow. These were records that I wasn't. You know, like. Yeah, valuing very much, um, but again, like that's also having the right bands at the right time, you know, having the right sound at the right time, and um, I I think like even in postmark stamps, you can kind of see that the sound of the label really shifts in the center there, and it's because to me, like emo that ha- had came after the the '94 summer for me, um, not to say that there isn't other any other the kind of like post hardcore version of emo because I know there is, um, but it really just turned into pop punk. Uh, you know, like, and and I like pop punk, like I'm a crimp shrine fan. I'm a, you know, like I, I, there's, there's plenty of pop punk out there that I think is very listenable. Uh, this is no attack on pop punk so much as the 20 year old, 19 year old Ken was like, that's music I listened to five years ago. Why you know like like Jawbreaker to me wasn't a cool band anymore. I've since you know like rectified that position, recognized <laughs> that the, yeah they're a really cool band, they're really good. Um, you know I think I was spoiled. I saw them a bunch of times. Totally. You know like like I've been in the front row. I have set lists. You know but but there was a point in time when I was like ah this is this is like pop punk. You know and and I'm mature and I'm gonna, um, get, I'm gonna get weirder. I'm gonna get weirder. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 so it didn't seem that cool to me. And so I remember writing this thing in this catalog that I did uh, at the time it was like, I'm paraphrasing here. It's like emo is fucking dead. So get over it. You know, because my opinion on it at the time was that the emo that I knew really was dead, you know, like in that scene that I was, that scene was dead. And so I felt that at that time that was, that was very real to me. Um, you know, but I also was saying to myself like this new emo, this is like, this is too commercial for me, you know, like, like, like this is your parents version of emo. And you mean like get up kids, braid, yeah, like, like promise and ring. Exactly. Like, and and here's the thing is like, I like all those guys. I like them then. And I like them now, but I felt like the thing that I wanted to do was maybe just a little more adult. And that felt a little more kid. And, um, I, I, you know, moving to Chicago, it, it just like, I grew up, really fast there. You know what I mean? Like I lived by myself for a while and you know, like, and I I didn't have a lot of friends and you know, I was just going to shows every night and just meeting people and staying out late. And it was just like, it, it was just such a different experience. Um, and I, I was meeting more adults as you do, you know, it's like when you can get into a bar the people that you hang out with change, you know, like, um, you know, because you in Chicago, especially, which is very much like a bar city you, know, you go to bars. Um, and so you, you, you kind of meet different people and then, you know, the, the emo kids aren't hanging out at bars. So, or they weren't then maybe they are now. Right. Um, and, uh, I just gradually sort of drifted away from it. But I, I think, um, also like the music wasn't that interesting to me it, you know it seemed like it was going in a really commercial direction i remember when dashboard confessional came out and kind of being like oh this is the end like this is this is this is and i actually have a great appreciation for his music now i don't i don't i don't hate it in the same way but i think remember then being like this shit's jumped the shark it's over. This is some poser stuff. Like, if you're into this, if you're into Deep Elm records, like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and again, like, I, I don't even... It's, it's weird to even throw shade on Deep Elm because it's like, they really were just, like, tapping into that next generation and finding all these young bands that were getting inspired by the things that I was doing. And so, you know, like, kind of a big ups to Deep Elm for, like, recognizing that there was going to be a next scene and to document that next scene. And Those comps uh, were big. Yeah, those comps were huge. Like, and and I, they weren't huge for me, but I recognized that they, they were huge for a generation of kids who were just a little younger than me. Um, and so, you know, like, my appreciation for all that stuff has grown immensely over the years because I think it's just cool that it's managed to survive. And, and you know, it, like I look back on it now, I'm like, Oh, well it's just the garage rock of the nineties. Yeah. You know, like this is, it's just like there were garage bands in the sixties playing, you know, they're, garage bands of the 90s plan you know, and, the, and the, the hardcore punk bands of the 80s became the emo bands of the 90s and you know the bedroom pop, dream pop thing of the, of, the o, of the OOs, it goes on and on and on. There's always going to be a little group of kids that are sort of discovering something old and weird and reinterpreting it in their own young and cool and interesting way.
0: I mean, that's the thing that people like to say, that the word is you know, anytime one of the bigger bands from the mid-2000s, they say, oh, it's back. You know, it never went anywhere. There are groups of kids listening to these things and I've noticed over the years how they've started to connect the dots more than pre than prior and they're putting their little spin on it and it's kind of amazing that it's still around. Yeah I mean I, I'm constantly looking at this stuff you know because
1: I'm, I'm my current job is to run another record label and I'm always looking for like the next version of it and and to me it's it's so fascinating to be listening to modern music and still be hearing these things that I heard in you know like 1997 and so it's like when i listen to wednesday i'm like oh this is they're kind of just an emo band you know and uh
0: and there's nothing wrong with that no it is it is just cool that they're taking maybe they take a little bit from this one year or someone gave them a Moss Icon record or they gave them the karate and they make their own little thing and they can put the connections together or not but to your point about these songs and these these bands being around and your job now it is our job to make sure they're streaming. make sure that they're available. They're not just at that one store and there's one copy. And that's the beauty of it now. yeah, i'm I'm really like fascinated by
1: the power of uh, streaming music and and where all of this is going and that everything is up. Well, not everything. but many things are up. And like everybody are you know, like people are getting wise. So it's like, oh, you got to have your stuff up if you if you want to be part of the conversation at all in any capacity you need to be able to be heard and you know there's places like that um sophie's floorboard site is really cool at, at documenting you know the the underground stuff and like I, I i've definitely gone down some some rabbit holes there and i'm super appreciative of of the work they do and i know that much of this is also on youtube but to me like this that's niche and like it you know if this music is good it wants to find that bigger audience and that means you know being on a spotify or an apple music and you know like having good cover art making sure it sounds good and you know like if if you want people to listen to this music you got to present it to them in the way that they're
0: currently listening to music and and to have it continue it wasn't just it's oh it's in stock at the store it needs to be in stock at these places that are you know streaming and i think there was this moment i felt where people oh it's fine You know, and then I think there was again another year where they're like, "Oh crap, we have to have it up. Where are the masters? Where are those?" Like I feel like there was a they didn't care what it was, and then the next year everyone cared where their stuff was. Yeah, I mean, I remember going through this
1: with Epitonic around the turn of the century and doing this deal, and I think I got like at the time, which was a lot of money, fifteen thousand dollar digital advance for a five year digital deal with them, and it was the it was you know like I could see that there was going to be this MP three world but I didn't value it that much you know I remember being like you need what you need me to get these files to you you want me to scan the cu-? you know like it it seems so yeah. foreign and, and it took me a long time to even get all of the tree stuff up on Epitonic even though we had an exclusive deal which is hilarious to think about in 1999 or 2000 on digital because there was really not a lot of players in the space at the time real player uh, <laughs> 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 you could not listen to tree on the real player I don't think um <laughs> yeah it's just it, it was a it was just a really different time um and now it's like you know i'm so thankful like i put all the tree stuff up that that can be um not everything like eucalyptus isn't up for streaming but to me like that record sort of belongs in the past and all those other records are you know like the, oh, the indian summer stuff is up the current stuff is up it's like you know boilermakers up, all these songs they're up you, you can listen to them and, yeah and you can make your own eucalyptus you know and you can you can not only make the eucalyptus that i made but you can add a thousand other songs underneath it and it can be your own eucalyptus. And I think that that's really cool. That's, that's always what I was trying to do when I was a kid, which is just to like turn people onto music. You know, when I, was coming back to my locker, you know, you could come to me with your Maxell 90 and be like, make me a tape of all the coolest shit. And you know, within a couple of days I'd bring you back a tape that had its own unique cover art, its own unique track listing. And like, here's the, here's my scene, you know, here's yeah. the stuff that I'm into. Um, and I, I think that, you know, what we're doing with playlisting at Numero is, is the same thing. Here's the stuff that we're into. Check it out.
0: Right. What has, what you mentioned a little bit earlier about, you know, tree sort of being that college for Numero. What other things have you picked up on as you've done Numero for a longer time of little pieces of tree continuing to sort of pop up or was it just college for, for numero.
1: No, I mean, I. It's so funny because you know I met my partners, um, Chris Swanson, Ben Swanson, Darius Van Arm, and I met them when they were running Sea Canadian, and that they, um, they bought the Julie Duran records from Tree when Tree went out of business. I sold those records to them, so I already had that relationship and then when we were growing at numero and and i was seeing how big that secretly was growing and you know between jag having you know won a grammy with bone of and um you know like dead oceans started and they had this distribution company and it's just like oh well they've got a little thing and and so i was able to use that connection of selling that record to them wow uh, you know 10 years earlier to be like hey I'm still doing this. Here's what I've been doing for the last decade. You know, maybe we could find a way to work together. And, you know, so, so everything from tree has, has informed today in, in one way or another, you know, whether it's, um, doing numero 20 this month, um, and having tsunami and Ida be there. And it's just like, well, I met Jenny and Kristen in 1995 when I went East and, you know, and I, 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 ask them tons of questions and I use their mechanics guide to figure out how to make records. And, you know, like they, they, like, uh, I'm still revisiting the relationships that I had 27 years ago and, you know, like finding new ways to, to get something different out of them, you know, where it's just like, Hey, we used to know each other. We did business together in another lifetime. Now we're older and we have a different thing going on and we worked well together then we will probably work well together now.
0: It almost is like the Numero 20, it should have a little like, you know, subheading under it, tree and like small letters, like, cause it is, those pieces are there. Oh yeah. I mean,
1: I was writing the intro for the program the other day um, and I was like, I was like, I, you know, they're really, it's really hard to say that like, you know, that this would have been possible if I hadn't done all the tree records that I did. And cause, cause really like when we started doing the 200 series at Numero, which is with Coding and Unwound, I was like, I was just going to the records that I liked listening to when I was a teenager. And she'd be like, oh, well, maybe we could just do these. I'm in my 30s now. Right. You know, how do they sound as a, as a 30-year-old um, you know, or a 35-year-old compared to when I was 15? And when I listened to them, I'm like, they still sound really good. Um, and I'm really right. thankful that I got to have the experience of like, having a life making records in that era, too, because I got every cool record. You know like I I, I I, was listening to everything I read every issue of heart attack I went to the record store every day you know like I I knew what records to buy and, and then even as I matured I was knowing what the right records to buy and so like it, it really came in super handy at numero because it's like oh I've already lived this thing now I can just help all these folks who have the rights to their records and help them have a, a next you know a next life with them um, which they certainly were not guaranteed at that. You know, when I look at something like Duster, I'm like, they've got almost 4 million monthly listeners. And it's, it's really cool to be able to be like, Hey, this, this is a thing that we all thought was dead, but it turns out it's not dead at all. And that, uh, it was actually way ahead of its time and its time has just arrived.
0: That's rad. And then how does it feel coming up on these, doing this show? I know there's stress and there's a lot of work to be done, but, um, it must feel, you know, to have not just a a release, but to have friends and come together and play music. And what are just some thoughts have come as this date (laughs) roars closer? Um, I'm, I, I don't know.
1: I, it's a really hard question to answer because I was saying this to you earlier, how like, you know, when I'm in the middle of something, it's hard for me to appreciate the thing that's happening because I'm already planning, you know, like I already know what we're doing for the next 20 months you know it's just like i'm working on records that we're not going to even see for a year from right now i'm already i'm already talking about it and thinking about it and so um you know i i'm i'm excited for the show to happen but i'm almost just as excited for the show to be over just so it's like it'll be a relief you know like to me um I'm always, you know, like feel like that kid who threw the party and wondered if anybody's going to come to the party, you know, it's just like, oh, well, do we get enough flyers out or like, do people think there's going to be beer here, whatever it is, you know, like, um, and uh, I just want to throw something that is really memorable and enjoyable and, um, and hope that people really like it. And my feelings on it while it's happening are, are, probably going to be mostly a, a trance and a daze like they are now. It's like sometimes you, you can't believe that you're in the middle of something because it, it's just wrapping itself around you.
0: There's going to be a lot of people. lot of friends and people to connect and pro I mean I just think those are unlike a high school reunion or 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 a college reunion you don't you maybe worked a group project with them but you did these things with them and help them put something out in the world and be able to have it come back around and do it again and there's someone in that crowd probably that's never saw those bands never heard those bands maybe and they're there and they're they're gonna get to and that's kind of I don't know amazing about it Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, again, like this
1: whole thing has been about trying to turn people on to music my entire life. And, and the show is, is mostly a way to just like take the past and, and reinvent it and and sort of reissue a a moment or a feeling and be like, oh, well, this is what like going to a show in the nineties are like, and sadly people will have cell phones and there'll be, you know, all mod cons. Um, But it, it just. You know, I I really do want to kind of like give people the experience of, of, you know, listening in a different way and and hopefully disconnecting. And like we've done a lot of really interesting programming inside the space as well that I I hope will allow people to sort of forget uh, when they are.